0: Libertarian podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, paying college athletes. And Richard, this topic is a perennial uh, point of discussion amongst sports fans. It's now one. Uh, amongst court watchers. You had a case before the Supreme Court this week, which grows out of a class action lawsuit filed back in 2014 by a group of Division I football and basketball players who argued that the NCAA's restrictions on compensating athletes amounts to an antitrust violation that denies the players the ability to get Their fair market value. Now, maybe we start with this at a slightly conceptual level. When we're talking about antitrust law, Richard, most people's minds go immediately to profit making corporations. So, walk us through how it complicates things if we're talking about an organization like the NCAA.
1: Okay, well, let's start, of course, with the profit-making organizations and let's uh, try to do antitrust law in three easy steps. And the first of these steps is you have what is called a horizontal arrangement in which people who are independent actors are uh, occupying the same kind of market niche. Uh, decide to come together, and they do one of two things typically. They either divide territory so there's no competition, or they collude and set minimum prices. And the social objection to that is that the gains that are obtained by the members of this particular arrangement are smaller than the social losses that are suffered by their consumers, because what happens when you raise prices on this particular situation, you reduce demand. And so it's not just a simple transfer of from one group to another. It is a reduction in wealth that accompanies a transfer. Uh, And so lots of people say you have to stop this from happening. And one of the ways that you could stop it from happening is preventing these people from getting together. This was known as contracts in restraint of trade, and they were rendered illegal at common law. Second kind of arrangement is when they're vertical, different stages of production. And here the difficulties are somewhat different because uh, if you put these people together, I'm a wholesaler, you're a retailer and so forth, you're a manufacturer, there are clear efficiency gains that come from this particular kind of situation. And it's much more difficult to find the restraints on trade. So vertical arrangements are generally judged by what they call a rule of reason, try to trade off one thing against another. The rule of reason is generally disfavored in these horizontal cases. And then there's the third class of conglomerate mergers, which really doesn't fit into this at all. Unrelated companies get together. Is this an antitrust violation because somebody uses huge management uh, skills in order to organize this, that, or the other market? Not an issue. Now, what happens when you take the first class of cases and all of a sudden you don't have profit-making organizations and you don't have them as independent? So leagues have always been very, very difficult to organize because they must have some form of competitive balance for anybody to be involved in the system at all. So if you could imagine a situation in which one property became so dominant that it had 90% of the market in players and it won every game, nobody would bother to attend because the uh, ability uh, to have a league means that the games have to be close enough so that people are excited and your team has to have a fair enough chance to win that you're willing to go out there and to participate. And so what happens is when you're dealing with leagues like the NCAA, they have to cooperate as well as compete. And when they're doing that, it means that there has to be some kind of restraint that can be put on what individual teams could do in order to make sure that the rest of it works. And so when you start seeing professional leagues in basketball, baseball, and football, there are these elaborate agreements that are started to negotiate. They are, in fact, negotiated uh, by the league as a whole and the players as a whole, and then in the end, you know, in the football league, when the thing breaks down or the baseball league, all of a sudden what happens is the union disbands, right? And they bring an antitrust violation, and then they get back together again, and there's no antitrust violation because there's a collective agreement. Now, those guys are profit-making entities. When you get to the colleges, there's another complication, which is these guys are not out there to kind of make money. One of the things that you say about businesses, they tend to deny cross-subsidies. When you start talking about colleges and universities, they're in the cross-subsidy business. The English department is is subsidized by the math department, or whatever it turns out to be. And, And so when you're doing these kinds of things, What happens is you look at this stuff and you say, well, it's a really complicated infrastructure. Uh, They're doing a lot of cross-ups. Are we really sure that in this kind of a business, the antitrust solution is going to get us to a better place? And so, for example, an antitrust solution which says it's an illegal cartel would say every player could go out there and bid – whatever they want for their services, no limitation. Then you look at what the district court did No, They said you could basically have to give them a certain minimum guaranteed salary. So the antitrust law didn't open it up to competitive bidding. What it did is it kind of raised the level that the players would be able to get, gave them certain advantages and other kinds of educational prerequisites and things like that. But what other kinds of compensation do you get? Not all that clear. And so what the Supreme Court justices clearly were worried about, this is a tremendously successful system. And if they start messing around with this on the compensation front, will they kill the goose that lay the golden egg And on the other side, they're worried about player exploitation. It's not just the players who are going for the big bucks playing in professional leagues. It's the kids who go to college, get injured, and they'd never be able to do something else again because of it. So what do you do? So they're worried about the distributional consequences. They're worried about the lonely athlete. They're worried about throwing up the whole system. So these are a bunch of people in genuine quandaries, and frankly, I sympathize with them.
0: The lower courts in this case have said that – Benefits related to education can't be restricted by the NCAA. So this would be things like postgraduate scholarships or if they're getting computer equipment or study abroad programs. But they did say that the NCAA is within its rights to limit non-education-related benefits. This is when you start talking about cash. Those are the rulings on appeal to the Supreme Court. Yeah, Yeah, but if this were – go ahead. Well, uh, well, I was just going to ask you how persuaded are you by that distinction that the lower courts worked up?
1: Um, It it seems to be to be completely ad hoc. I mean, generally speaking, what happens in a competitive market, all the players have to be independent and what they could do is ask for as much money they want. And here what you do is you say is that you can't put a limitation on the amount of educational benefits, but you could stop them from getting cash and non-educational benefits. Uh, What they're doing is they're conceding that this is not a purely competitive industry because if it were, they would never do this. And essentially what happens is you get a great athlete who comes to college. Um, And are you going to pay this person a million dollars, whereas everybody else who's just a kind of anonymous figure? No. So imagine LeBron James back when he's 18 years old and he wants to go to college. Well, this guy is already arguably the best, you know, basketball player in the world at the time. Uh, So one of these places says, we'll pay you $4 million to come here because the pros will pay you five. Uh, They don't want that to happen because if you do that, they may well win, but then the whole system is going to get screwed up. So what they're doing essentially is they are basically saying, we think there's a kind of an antitrust violation in there, so we're going to give you kind of an antitrust remedy. What we're not going to do is to turn this thing into a purely competitive industry uh, because for the reasons I mentioned, the distributional consequences in nonprofit industries, which are dependent upon each other for success, make everything very muddy. So the Supreme Court is faced with a split verdict down below and then they want to go above you know they start talking about exploitation of individual players Uh, it's really exploitation when you see hundreds of players desperately competing for these kinds of scholarships doesn't look like exploitation to me are these players left worse off the answer is surely not but in the antitrust law it has always been the case a monopolist essentially when it does business with its customers They are still better off entering the deal, though less than otherwise, and nobody has ever said it's a mark against an antitrust case to say that they're still willing consumers. Uh, So, exploitation is a funny term to use. What you're really trying to figure out is what's the optimal competitive distribution with maximum social surplus, and we've already conceded that these university-type arrangements do not seem to be amenable to the kind of simple-minded analysis that works quite well in ordinary competitive industries.
0: There was a lot of discussion before the court about the issue of what the phrase amateur athlete means. And, Richard, what we're really talking about here is is football and basketball. These are the programs that bring in the most money and attention. These are the programs that can act as pipelines to professional sports. And there's an argument you'll hear sometimes that these kinds of semi-professional endeavors, with all this money floating around them, have outgrown any rationale for being housed at universities, that these are not simple extracurricular activities that are there for the recreation of the students. These are businesses, big businesses in some cases, that have been grafted onto the universities, but some people argue are, are somewhat corrosive of what the university should be about. And we'd be better off if we just decouple them. What's your the, view
1: on that? Well, look, the, you could see that that is was exactly the opposite point that they're making here. Uh, they're saying these people that we think that universities ought not to be in this athletic business at all. So instead of saying that we ought to raise these prices that you pay to scholar athletes, what we ought to do is just jettison the situation and put it elsewhere. Uh, but I think that doesn't understand the nature of this stuff. I mean, if you have a great college football team and you can fill 80,000 people in a COVID-free season and many of them are alumni, the money that's going to come in is going to support all sorts of other programs in this rather complicated ecosystem with lots of cross-cultures. So you get rid of those particular athletes and then all of a sudden the amount of money that you could get to run your academic programs, your elite scholars and so forth, is going to go down as well. And, and so eventually what this is basically Basically saying is, we want to get these people out of the business. That's not going to help the student athletes at all, right? Uh, but then they're going to be minor league players, and if they don't have any kind of affiliation with a university and so forth, can you imagine that these, you know, the Decatur Stallies and a football league are basically playing out of Fort Wayne, Indiana, or some third, twelfth town? They're not going to get any large contact. They're not going to get any audience. You need the alumni base to keep this thing going. So uh, those people basically are at war with the plaintiff. This. They're not at the war with the defendants. And what the defendants are kind of trying to say is, look, given this rather complicated system of cross-subsidies, uh, what you do is you put an enormous strain on the amount of money that we have to pay to our athletes to keep them there, then we're going to have less money to pay for the other kinds of scholarships that we start to give out. And, you know, you could take whatever position you want on these kinds of issues, but the Supreme Court, I think, was pretty much aware of the fact that, Exploitation doesn't get you very far in this. Collusion doesn't get you very far in it. And they're really struggling to find out what goes on. Uh, The preferred solution, in my judgment, is uh, essentially a consensual one. What you do is you get these teams together and they look around the situation. And basically what's happened is they're too rich. And they pay too much to their coaches. And so what they ought to do essentially in coordination, I think, is to say, we're going to basically say, we're going to give everybody a full tuition scholarship and pay them $20,000 a year. And the other thing, we're going to give them insurance policies so that they get injured uh, while they're working for us. uh, They're going to be cared for whether or not they want to go on to professional sports. So you kind of try to figure out what the optimal package is and try to keep the courts out of it. But the moment you get class action plaintiff's lawyers, those aren't going to do any good to them. They only get money to the extent that there's a transfer payment coming out of the settlement. So in an odd way, I think that the best strategy is for the teams to get together, schools to get together, the conferences to get together, and try to preempt all of this thing by offering a more generous position. I quite agree with the complaint that, you know, uh, years ago, professional athletes got very little, college athletes got very little. But in this great new age, if you could pay your coach $2 million, $3 million, $4 million a year, uh, you probably ought to pay what you pay for these particular athletes. You don't want to go too far up on that particular line because then you're going to create needless divisions within the student body. It's a real balancing act. And the constant theme that Seth Waxman put in the argument, you guys don't know how to micromanage this at all all, actually rings true to me under these particular circumstances. But at the same time, if he says, you don't know what to do, and therefore we're not going to change anything, uh, what you're going to do is you're going to have a real second best judgment. Have we basically capitulated to the schools? Are we going to over-enrich these various players? Uh, it's not there. So I generally favor voluntary action amongst these collective organizations that will move in the direction indicated by the class action suit.
0: Are the circumstances of this case in the organization of the NCAA sufficiently unique that we should think about this as being sort of in a vacuum, or is there a potential that a Supreme Court ruling in this case could have broader antitrust implications?
1: Well, it depends on how they write the opinion. I mean, if it begins with this is a very narrow decision which relates to the peculiar circumstances of professional or not professional amateur athletes, whatever they're called, Um, uh, and we don't want to generalize from it, I I think it would not spill over. But, for example, there was a situation some years ago where the Justice Department actually sued the elite universities because it was quite clear that what they did is they set meetings together in which they agreed on maximum scholarships that they would pay to certain privileged students. And so if you were at University X, you agreed to pay tuition plus $5,000, you would not go any higher for a particular person. And then what happens is there's going to be a spread of these people across the elite institutions because a dominant financial place like Harvard, for example, can't outbid everybody else. And they were attacked under the antitrust laws, And the outcome was very uncertain. I think the practice itself has to some extent been ended as a collusive matter. Uh, But the spectacle of having some math genius receive a million dollars in order to come to a major university while everybody else gets crumbs is not particularly appetizing. So this shows that in any kind of nonprofit profit situation, the cross-subsidy distributional issues loom much larger than they do in competitive industries, which are organized to bleed out cross-subsidies. That's not what the University of Chicago does or NYU does and so forth. Uh, we run them all the time. Sometimes we know what we're doing, sometimes we don't. Uh, but I don't think that everybody believes that there's a kind of a strategy inside a university which says every tub on its own bottom uh, so that there's no effort to kind of share common expenses across the an integrated institution. Uh, so it's very difficult to run universities. I think that's true with respect to admissions and scholarships. I think it's true with respect to athletes. Uh, you ask about the question, do you call them amateur athletes or not? Um, the word really doesn't carry much, meaning the old sense of the word amateur athlete was that you were an independent person of independent means and you compete in the Wimbledon tournament without pay. And if you recall, that's the way Wimbledon was up until the early 60s. And that explains why Rod Laver, who may have been the greatest tennis player of all time, uh, he took a turn on the tro circuit before essentially uh, Wimbledon decided to cave and pay all of their players some sum. Professionalization has not ruined tennis, but that's because you're dealing with independent entrepreneurs. You're not dealing with complicated institutions like you face in the college situation.
0: Final question, most important one, who's your pick coming out of the final four?
1: You know, I would go with Gonzaga on the grounds that nobody's been able to beat them yet. Um, you know, I'm from USC when I taught there many years ago, and I still remember the great games between USC and UCLA. Uh, so to some extent, uh, the crosstown rivals forget that they're rivals, and so your sentimental favorite is uh, the number 11 seed, I think, in this tournament. But my guess about uh, Gonzaga is it's had the best record going up all the way into this situation, and I don't think it's very likely that they're they're going to be reversed, right? I guess they're two number one seeds, a number two seed, Houston, correct? And then there's UCLA. Uh, So, I mean, I've not been following sports avidly lately. Um, God knows too much work, I suppose. But I would think that Gonzaga's going to win, I think, Publicly, they've got to be the sentimental favorite. It's only if you remember the days when you really thought about John Wooden winning all those things and kind of making him a legend in his own time that you have some sympathy for UCLA. But he retired in 1975, and I think the modern generation is not going to treat him as the uh, lodestar for figuring out who your favorite is and going through the uh, uh, tournament.
0: You've been listening to The Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, at definingideas at hoover.org. And if you enjoy the podcast, please rate the show on iTunes or wherever you listen. For Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit... That's hoover.org.